and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about my book, which came out last October. It's called Shift Your Mind. Really excited with how it turned out, getting great feedback from a lot of you, the listeners and strangers and and random people. And it's been really fulfilling for me to hear about how people are shifting their mind and how they are setting their mind in both preparation and performance. As some of you know, if you've listened to the podcast before, this is a framework that I'm really passionate about, that I talk about with a lot of our guests, and I really believe is essential for elite performance. So if you enjoy this conversation, this podcast, I think you're going to enjoy the book. You can also download the audio book at Audible with Amazon. So if you enjoy listening to learn, I highly recommend checking out our audio book. If you want to purchase the book, we have an ebook available at Amazon and you can also buy the book anywhere books are sold. If you enjoy Shift Your Mind, it would mean a lot to us if you went over to Amazon and wrote a review for the book. It really does help us expand our reach. And the same goes for the podcast. If you like these conversations, and I know today's guest is going to bring it and you're going to love a lot of her thoughts. But if you like today's conversation or any of our conversations, if you could go over to iTunes and write us a review, once again, it really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. I can't tell you how much it means to me to have your support. Thanks for being here and thanks for the continued support. Now to today's guest. I'm going to talk about how Ray Ringel and I first met in this conversation. So I'm going to give you a bit of information on her bio and her background so you have the context for this conversation. Ray is a certified executive coach and she's the founding president of the Ringel Group. She is currently a faculty member at the Georgetown University Institute for Transformational Leadership, which is where I attended for executive coaching, and it's really one of the best coaching programs in the world. People fly in from everywhere to learn from Georgetown and from professors and teachers like Ray. She's also the founding director of their certificate program in the art of facilitation and design. I think that's one of the things that really stands out about Ray is certainly she knows how to train people teach them skills. She also knows how to coach people, but she is a facilitation expert. She's a master facilitator. I've seen her in action and she really is incredible. And I know you're going to get that from her today as well. She's also an adjunct faculty at the University of Maryland, Robert H. Smith School of Business. So she wears a lot of hats. She's a mom, which we're going to talk about in this conversation. She's a facilitator. She's a teacher. She's a coach. And she is just a wise, wise soul. Ray is also in high demand as an innovator in the areas of coaching, facilitation, and training across multiple sectors. She's going to talk about some of her work in the nonprofit world, which I think you're going to find fascinating. She enables a growing list of executives in some of the most successful Fortune 500 companies as well. I mentioned nonprofits and also in government agencies so that they can become more effective managers and stronger communicators with a formidable leadership presence. Ray is an honest, authentic, genuine, passionate, 
person who brings her knowledge or brings her wisdom to her work. And you can tell that this is the work that she's meant to be doing. I'm telling you, you're going to love this conversation with Ray. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ray Ringel. Ray, so excited to have you on the podcast. This is a long time coming. And the reason it's a long time coming is because we had coffee in Bethesda, Maryland. Gosh, how long ago? Six years, five years, seven? I don't know. I get, I lose track of years. But the reason we we chatted was because at the time I was doing all this sports psychology work and I kept hearing from people, oh, do you know Ray Ringel? I think she does something similar to you. And I said, no, but let, let me reach out to her and, and let's connect. And then I heard you facilitate something and I was like, oh, she's on it. So, so that, that pushed me over the edge. We got coffee. And that was the first time I learned really about this world of executive coaching, which I didn't know about, which is crazy to me. And then I learned about this world called Georgetown and these programs that, that Georgetown offers around executive coaching and facilitation and a bunch of other stuff. And so I then went down this path and went through the Georgetown program and in large part, thanks to you, because you opened my eyes to it. Uh, and today, over 50% of my work is, is in corporate compared to sport. And I still work in the sports world a bunch, but if it wasn't for that conversation, I would not be doing what I'm doing today. So I, I'm forever grateful for you. And then there's one other piece that I want to mention while we are recording is I then went to the conference that Georgetown put on, uh, I guess it was now two years ago, and I heard you in action in a different capacity and you were facilitating something. And what I appreciate most about you is that a lot of people in the executive coaching world can be, I'm going to say woo-woo-y or gentle and um, like create this presence that is very warm and very welcoming. And you are those things and you have an intensity about you. You are authentic and genuine. And for me, hearing you facilitate while still being you and, and being genuine and, and having an opinion and have a, a tenacity about you allowed me to step into that for myself and allowed me to be myself when I do my work. So two points of gratitude to kick this off. One is for introducing me to this field and two for allowing me to say, Hey, I can, I can still be me and I don't have to be something that is not as organically myself when I'm, when I'm doing work. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on those, but I wanted to start by just acknowledging that and thanking you. Well, I really appreciate that. And I, I think the world is going to be a better place because you are doing this work. So, uh, it's I, I I love that idea of that, how my presence landed for you. And I think that it's actually ironic because I link a lot of that back to being a lifelong athlete. And uh, I have I do have a fierceness about me and a, and a competitive edge. It's something that's a big part of my identity, something that I value. And I I try and cultivate a presence of being very loving. Uh, and supportive, but also challenging and strong to do the real work that needs to be done out there for transformation. You use the word competitive. And I remember meeting with the executive coach early when I was exploring this field. And I said, yeah, what I look for in clients are that they're competitive, that they're ambitious, that they're curious, that they're open-minded, that they're driven. And she looked at me, she said, competitive? I was like, yeah, that's like baseline for me is that they're competitors. And to hear you use the word competition, how do you think about competing in competition and how do you think about it in, in your work or, or generally? It's so interesting to see how it's shifted through the years. It was something that was really cultivated in me as a kid. It might've been the community I grew up with, with those crazy parents on the sidelines. Um, I'd like to think I'm not one of those crazy parents on the sideline now, but I watch with my kids now how everyone's a winner and everyone gets a chance. And I love that in terms of building confidence. And I also think that it's healthy to understand that um, that you can compete, that you can excel, that you can also lose, or you can take second or fourth place and feel good about your efforts. I, I don't see it as a bad thing as long as you are continuing to be a person who is empathetic and sensitive. And um, it's really interesting because whenever I watch professional sports games and I really root for my team, I get super into it, but then when the camera pans on the losing team, I can't handle it, right? So I'm a big talker about competitive, but I also always feel bad for the underdog. Um, I think I am also aware of 
I don't have to tell you this, but one of the core core principles of sports psychology is the relationship between anxiety and performance. And essentially sports psychology says anxiety is awesome for performance until it's not right. Like what is that sweet spot of where anxiety increases your performance and enhances you and makes you more competitive, but then you have to be able to hold it because if it's too much anxiety, you'll choke. And I call this in my coaching practice, productive discomfort. How do you feel just enough discomfort to help you perform or help you generate or help you create, but still maintaining it? So that idea of anxiety performance is linked to competition. And I think it can be so useful in our work with leaders. It's so good. And just to put a bow on that, there's something called the Yerkes and Dodson inverted U theory, which is what I think you're referencing, which is if we don't have enough, they call it arousal. You could call it energy, anxiety. Arousal can trip up some high school kids if you ever want to bring up this theory. Um, but inverted U theories basically suggest if you're not excited enough, your performance won't be where it needs to be. And if it's too much, it'll suffer. And then, so there's a sweet spot for us. And then there's this in, uh, optimal zone of functioning that people work on. And I usually talk about that with athletes. And then there's the catastrophe theory, which suggests that there's a ledge that you can go over. And that's where I think you're talking about choking. You mentioned uh, childhood and um, sports. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and your upbringing because I know a lot about you, but I actually don't know much about uh, how you became Ray. Hmm. I grew up in, in first in Westchester, New York, and I was um, a very, very active kid, I think. I probably had undiagnosed ADHD, just didn't know it at the time. I was constantly on the move, constantly going. And I was really, really drawn to sports. And since probably, I think probably in the third grade, I always played, um, I always played soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, softball in the spring, and then eventually added travel soccer to the spring with softball. And it was just, it's all I wanted to do. It's all I wanted to do. And we, I grew up in a community where on the streets, you know, you play kickball until the sun goes down and they call you in for dinner. Like, I just love that idea of being active and playing. And I was good. I was really, really good. Uh, my challenge for me is that I, my father always said, if I picked one sport and just leaned into it, I could probably go all the way with it. But I just loved every sport. I mean, I love dodgeball. I love tennis. I love water skiing. Like I just loved anything with movement. Although ironically, I should say that I don't love sports where my feet are not on the ground. I'm not into horseback riding. I'm uh, not into downhill skiing. I like the idea of my feet being on the ground minus water skiing. Um, so I played competitively all the way through, you know, starting in ninth grade on varsity sports and was captain of my teams. And I actually went to college. Uh, I started off in college playing soccer freshman year at University of Rochester. It just became too much um, it, for me. It just I just felt like I wasn't having a college experience. So I actually stopped playing soccer and amazingly joined my college acapella group. And for four years in college, I was known as this acapella singer and no one even knew I was an athlete, which was a bit of an identity crisis, but I just sort of leaned into that other part of myself, which I've always been extremely musical. I grew up in a very musical family. Um, my brother is playing piano and I sing, my father sings and big Broadway family. So uh, it was just, those were the kinds of things that I grew up with. I think the other thing for me was uh, my parents were, my parents got divorced when I was nine and then they both got remarried within three years of that. And I had to move from New York to New Jersey when my mother remarried. And that was, uh, those were very, very dark days for me. Just, um, just a real challenge to be uprooted like that. And, you know, when you're doing that as a teenager and moving and new parents and just that the breaking of the family, um, my brother and I dealt with it in much different ways. I sort of, my rebellious side really came out. I felt like when I was on the field and I was connecting to my team, I felt like I could really lose myself in that world and escape from some of the darker things that were happening in my life and even in my home. Um, and it was a huge outlet for me uh, during those years until things kind of stabled out a bit. It's interesting as I'm hearing you talk about 
soccer sort of running its course. And then I think about a marriage running its course. And I'm curious your relationship with stopping things. Um, do you look at, how, how do you, how do you think about it? What do you think about stopping things versus staying with them? That is a great question. Uh, I think during those years I got into stopping. Like I, when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a French professor. Um, I don't even speak French anymore. So freshman year of college, I quit French and I started up with sign language and that didn't really work for me. Right. But I definitely had some stops and starts with majoring in this and majoring that. And I think there was a really interesting relationship between, um, between stopping things in those years. And then as I grew, it really, really flipped and it became the exact opposite. It became about staying the course and not letting go and digging in and working it through. And uh, I feel like I'm someone now who kind of the pendulum swung, you know, kind of swung the other way. Like I am all in to everything that I do and I see it through. And even if it's hard or it's painful, like I just, I just like bear down and, um, and, and go for it. So, but I do, I can't see those years where that was trickier for me. Was, was there a first thing that you stuck with? It sounds like acapella came in and then you did that for four years. Was that the first thing that you said, I'm committing to this and I want to excel at it and, and then stuck with it? Obviously soccer, you had to stay with and excel at to play, you know, at a, at a high level. Um, but growing up playing soccer, you're a kid. I mean, I work with a lot of college athletes. The reason that they're playing a college sport is often not necessarily by their choice. It, it just sort of can happen or their parents or they're talented. So, it, 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 but acapella is something, I mean, I think about acapella, you have to be a bit fearless to do it. Um, you have to work with other people. There's something beautiful. I've always been thought acapella is gorgeous. Uh, and I've always wanted to do it, even though I don't think I can sing at all, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. A couple of people would maybe vouch for that comment that I can't say. Um, but what was the first thing that you remember really getting into and saying, yeah, I'm going to see this through? I would say that that is something that I, when I stepped into it, I really saw it through. I gave it everything that I had in college and still I had a zoom call this week with my acapella group, you know, 30 years later, all these years later, we're still very connected. So it was definitely that Brian, but it was more than the music. I think for me being a part of that, the thing about acapella that I love so much is that you have to be totally focused on what you're doing while completely aware of what nine other people around you are doing and they're doing something totally different. So like deep listening and alignment, I use the idea of acapella all the time when talking about teams and leadership development, like how do you carry your own line and do it with strength and consistency while being completely aware of everything else that's going on around you. So that is, it became a metaphor for me for how I live my life of how I do my work. And I think in conjunction with that, at the same time, what, the, what was really developing for me during those years and has stuck all these years later is what I've always been most consistent about in my life and never given up on is relationships and friendships. And I think that really started in college. Um, I am someone who my hobby is people. I collect them. I am ridiculous about keeping in touch with people uh, more so than books or stamps or collections or hobbies, even sports. Like my thing is relationships and human beings. And that's the thing that I've, oh, that's always centered me and that I am completely consistent about through my whole life. Where does that come from for you? I think that partially that there, there, there's like so the negative side and the positive side. I think that when you go through a lot with your family as a young person and the thing that is supposed to be the most stable and secure in your life becomes broken, you're looking for other places in your life to, you know, to heal, to relate, to connect. So at a pretty young age, I was looking for those friends who are going to help me through some of those more challenging times and realize at a quite a young age how you don't have to necessarily share blood with people for them to be your family. I think the second thing, to be quite honest, what cultivated my 
deep, deep appreciation and love for human beings is I am a lifelong camper. Summer camp was probably the most transformative experience for me as a child in terms of friendships, in terms of coming back to sports and healthy competition. Um, it was a, played a huge part in my developing identity and those relationships are still central to me today. It's just fascinating because I think about the gifts of adversity and obviously you don't want people to get divorced and don't want to have challenges in the home. But one of the gifts for you was this idea that I could go create relationships with people outside of my family um, and value that and value the stick to of a relationship um, and, and nurturing it. Yeah. And I think for me, it also showed me at a young age, and I think this plays out a lot in my work and my personal life is that you know, in relationships, when, when you don't go there and you tuck, you tuck things under the carpet, you have a, you, you have a foundational crack um, that you have to really go there with, with, with your life partners, with your, your work colleagues, with people like there is no tucking under the carpet because it just, it just builds and builds and builds. So I'm someone who is very open about naming things or when there's strife or, or the way that I express my appreciation and love for people. I think sometimes it just drives my husband bonkers, but I am all in about, about, you know, being open about the ups and the downs. So, and also the ability to choose and to work hard. I think that when you come from a family that's been broken up, you could either you can either follow that pattern or you can really work in the opposite direction to make sure you never follow that pattern and be like vigilant and persistent about having a healthy relationship, which is something that I spend a lot of time on. What do you intentionally do to make sure that those relationships are, are strong? Well, with my, with my friends and that those kind of community members like that, it's really, um, it's just that really being in touch and asking the right questions to make sure I'm in tune with what's happening in their in their lives, uh, just staying like wildly curious about their stories and how their stories are changing. Uh, so smaller gestures of letting people know they're on your mind. And I would say with my with my husband, uh, we are coming up next week on our 18th wedding anniversary. We have four children. It is bananas in my house. Uh, we also have a impulsive pandemic pet purchase of a puppy. Those are a lot of peas. I don't know who told me that was a good idea, but this puppy's harder than the four kids that I'm raising. Um, it's a lot and I have a big job and he has a big job. So we have to work really, really hard at uh, having our own relationship that's separate from the rest of our family, of investing in one another, of having adventure together, of laughing. Um, every summer we take these big epic trips around the world. We drop our kids off at camp and we just go and we are very, very intentional about staying, you know, keeping spice there, keeping open communication and pushing each other. You mentioned adventure and, and going away, but you also do sabbatical. And that was one of the things that blew me away when we first met. You told me, yeah, I'm going on sabbatical. Or I would email you and say, hey, I'm here right now. And uh, I'm sort of doing this or doing that. And, and you know, for someone who's got plenty of work to be done, I've always been amazed by your willingness to step into doing sabbaticals, traveling, like you're saying, on the summer. So talk about how you think about sabbatical and what that experience is like for you. So we have a really interesting family tradition that kind of blows people's minds when we tell them about it. My husband was born and raised in Jerusalem in Israel and has a very large family there. And uh, we are very, very close to that family, which by the way, is just interesting again, in thinking about how much I love and appreciate my family. And I've stepped into this whole other family system. And I just, they're such an important part of my life. We are the only branch out of that large family that lives uh, overseas. So we decided, we meaning myself decided, but uh, my husband came along for the ride. I said, listen, if we're not going to live in Israel, I want our kids to know their cousins. I want them to speak Hebrew fluently. I want them to be comfortable with the culture. So we decided that every time one of our kids 
is ready for first grade, we are going to move to Israel for first grade. Um, and every kid will do first grade in Israel because that's the year you learn how to read and write and that's how they'll be fluent in the language. So we have four kids. So we have four times out of the, in the last 12 years moved back and forth to Israel. So each kid can do first grade there. Um, some of the years my husband didn't even come. He sort of commuted. And I just felt really, really strongly about giving them that foundation, giving them that cultural identity, the relationships with their with their family. And it has been um, not easy. It looks really great on Facebook, but it's not always easy. But it has been uh, it has been one of the most exciting and um, happy choices that we've ever made for our kids. And I know that they really appreciate it. All right. I want to go into this because to your point from the outside looking in, it sounds amazing. And here we are, you know, in COVID, we've been at it for a while now. And my wife and I talk about like, we should be doing something. We've got a four-year-old and a five-year-old, but we're like, uh, it's kind of challenging and difficult. And, you know, what should we do? And we keep going back and forth on that. And um, so I'm curious to learn a little bit more about what that experience has been like for you and, and for your kids. Um, and, and so for you, I would, I want to start with relationships are so important to you. And as you're over there, maybe you miss some events, uh, or activities or some people, um, celebrating something. Uh, how do you maintain those relationships with people that are in the U S while you're, while you're overseas? Well, it's so easy now. I mean, it's just with WhatsApp and this and FaceTime, it's so easy. And many of my clients never even knew that I was living in Israel. The challenge is just you have to work really late at night because it's seven hours ahead, right? But so I might be coaching someone at midnight while I'm like pounding Red Bulls on the side. But, you know, it's, it's just so different now. If we've learned anything from COVID, it means that we can be anywhere and we can be super productive and super connected. So it was really never a problem maintaining my work or maintaining relationships. I also came back once every four to six weeks and I would do like a U.S. tour for five days and do all of my training and facilitation. So it was exhausting, but it, it's absolutely doable. The experience of, you know, I, I always say to people that, well, my kids have issues like any other kids, but the one thing that they're awesome at is adapting. I could go to Portugal tomorrow and drop my kids off in a school and they'd be like, later. I mean, my kids know how to move in and out of spaces because we've never done it any other way. We never said you have to be home at one so they can nap in their crib. Like we just strap them on and we go. And I feel like their ability to move in and out of new spaces because they've had to do that so much already while they might complain about it in the moment, I know is going to be a gift for them in their life. It's, it's so massive. And I think about what we're in right now. And if you're a perfectionist, this is a really hard time. If you are a control person, this is really hard, but if you have agility and you have adaptability and flexibility, you're probably okay. Um, you might not be thriving. I think it's hard to thrive in this environment, but you, you're probably going to be okay. And I think about this as a parent and I struggle with this and how do you provide safety for your kids without always going toward comfort? Because those are not, they're not the same thing. Like your kids are safe with what you're doing, but they're getting to explore and they're getting to experience and they're having to go to a new class. And I, I hear this. I've had a lot of military brats, quote unquote brats on the, on the podcast. And they'll talk about their ability to read a room and to figure out what do I need to do and how do I need to do it? Because they had to move around and they had to go to a new base and they're pretty blunt about it. In order to not get picked on or bullied, they would have to figure out who do I need to be friends with? How do I develop a relationship with these people? And, and they've talked about how that helps them as an adult um, in business or whatever it is that they do. And so for me, I think one of the questions I have for you is as you observe what your kids go through every time you move there and they have to adjust and go to go into school and, and, you know, maybe pick up with their old friends, some of the older kids or, or what that dynamic is like, what are you observing as it relates to their independence and their flexibility and their agility? And is there a downside to that as well, um, that you notice? Hmm. This situation, I think, sometimes is a bit different because even though I'm 
we're putting them in those situations. Remember, they have a huge safety net there of a family, like they're anchored in something. It's not like we're going to Iceland where they don't know anyone. So we have a network to lean on. And I think that makes a big difference when you are, um, when you are taking these kinds of risks and adventures, what is your support system? Um, so for me, it's about trying to help them understand how uh, the current moment, even if it feels stressful, is going to add to their life, like having an international network or having closer relationships with the family or having um, a second language to lean into is like constantly helping them understand what's behind our decision and why we're actually doing this. Uh, and that works sometimes, except when there's, you know, fits and, <laughs> and tantrums. I think some of the downsides of, of this choice that we've made is it, it definitely can feel disruptive in terms of when we get there, there's a couple of months of transition and then we come home. There's definitely a couple months of transition in terms of gaps in learning, um, reconnecting with friends. Um, and just trying to sort of catch up on what they've missed. So like anything in life, just like in business, you have to do a cost benefit analysis and really look at, we have always thought that the benefits of this far outweigh the costs. And I think for the, I think that's really been true for us. It's just for children. They initially can really only connect to the cost. They, they can't really, they just don't have the intellectual nuance yet to get to the benefit. So we have to really drive that home for them. And how, sometimes for ourselves as well. How, how old is your youngest? My youngest now is nine. So we're past, we're past first grade with your youngest. Oh my gosh. We have no more first graders. So I, I said to my, uh, I said to my daughter who is a junior in high school, I said, well, we need a new plan. So when you go to Israel for your gap year for before college, we'll just like, we'll just come. We'll all come again for your gap year. And she goes, she says, Ima, which means mother in Hebrew. She goes, Ima, the gap is from you guys. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I know you're saying that with love, right? So we need a new plan. <laughs> is there a plan or no plan? Is there, what are you thinking? Is the puppy's first grade? The puppy oh gets God. the first grade? the puppy. Um, I, we don't know what the new plan is. And with this new administration, we might have opportunities also to be overseas. We don't have a current new plan. And as the kids get older, they're more resistant because they're more in their routines and their rhythm. So we don't have a new plan, but we do, we do spend a lot of time there. Back to you as a, a professional, um, facilitation, when did that come into your world? Uh, last time, where we left off in this conversation was, you know, French, you know, be wanting to be a French teacher or French professor. Um, where walk me through your professional journey a bit. Yeah. So I got off the French train in college and got onto the psychology train, which obviously makes sense. I majored in psychology and minored in sports psychology in, in college. And I thought that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist like that. I just got really got into just, people's pain and healing and growth. And I, that was a natural fit for me as I had also gone through my own journey with all of that. Um, I actually went abroad for a year after college. And when I came back, I started, um, I, I, the year I went abroad after college, I actually went to Israel and I had not grown up with a strong Jewish identity. It was kind of like doing the Peace Corps there. And I really got bit by that part of the world, by that culture, and I wanted to learn more. So I came back and I started working in the nonprofit Jewish community in the space of um, just helping college students find themselves and, and journey on. And what happened is in working in this nonprofit community, I realized the great dysfunction of nonprofits and that nonprofits didn't have the money to bring in like the big five consulting firms to do organizational change. And it kind of came to me, it dawned on me that maybe I don't want to sit in a room with people on a couch all day long. Um, maybe I want something different. So I remember getting the course book for graduate programs at Columbia and I just went shopping. I mean, I literally just, I read the whole thing cover to cover. And is it going to be social work? Is it going to be psychology? Is this? And then I stumbled upon organizational behavior or industrial psychology, that area. And I thought, oh, that's it. That's like psychology in the professional world where you help people perform and be their best. And all of a sudden it was like the light bulb performance and competition and motivation and behavior and psychology. Bam. Like it was right there. And it just really spoke to me. So I went and I got a graduate degree in at Columbia in organizational behavior, which was at Columbia and uh, at Teachers College and at 
Columbia Business School. And I started getting into the world of training and designing training programs for people to be better public speakers and lead meetings and be better managers and supervisors and really getting into how do people like unlock their potential and grow. So I just became fascinated in that whole world of professional growth and development. And that's really my where my career started. Um, eventually, when I moved to Washington, I went off on my own after having leadership positions in organizations and started doing leadership training programs on my own. And a couple of people would say to me, this is great. Can you do this one-on-one -on -one for me? Can you coach me? Of course I can coach you. So I just started coaching people just, you know, based on gut or intuition, which most of us do until I learned that as a newly minted Washingtonian, the, the best coaching school in the country was three miles from my house, which is when I enrolled in Georgetown. And I remember being in class that first day. And I think I told you this when we met on that first day at Georgetown, watching one of the faculty members do a demo in front of the room with a student. I was looking at this coaching conversation saying, I don't know how I'm ever going to do that, but I know this is exactly what I need to do. Um, and things took off from there. Uh, the, the interesting thing about facilitation is I think I had always been facilitating, but hadn't really named it until about 10 years ago when I was asked to design a program on how people can facilitate. And one of my colleagues and I, Yoni Gordis, had to design a facilitation boot camp, and we had to start to write or name or put language to these things that we had always did. So we did, we created something called the facilitation intensive. And I started bringing that work to Georgetown. I started training coaches on facilitation skills because coaches are always asked to then come in and facilitate an executive team or a leadership team. And they say, sure, but they don't necessarily have the tools and the skills to, to do that. So I started teaching facilitation skills to coaches and then Georgetown asked me to design the sister program at Georgetown to the coaching program, the executive certificate and facilitation. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to cut you. Yep. Cause there's a lot of meat here. And mm. the place that I'm most curious about is you started this journey wanting to be doing training and you go to companies to do training and organizational training for performance and unlocking potential. Then you go to, you're doing training. Then you go, you, you learn about coaching. All right, now I'm going to get my skills to do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And now you're talking about facilitation. So I'd love for you to just create distinctions around how you think about training, coaching, facilitation. Obviously there might be some overlap in the three, but what, what makes them different from each other? It's a great question. So I would say that training is a bit more about, let me take what's in my brain and give it to you and teach you how to do it and hold your hand while you're doing it, right? It's really about imparting skills and techniques and tools. It has psychology in it too, but it's much more tactical where I'm taking my content and giving it to you and you're practicing, right? Facilitation has some of that in it, but it's more about enabling a group to do the work. So setting up the context or the construct or the exercises or the activities for the group to actually do the work where you're mining the intelligence and the wisdom and the skill that's in a room and you're trying to take it to the next level. So I'm there to really guide a process through and to make sure that when people come into the room, they come out differently. Sometimes I am training during that, but a lot of times I'm moving the room around and holding, holding the space for them to do that work. So that's a big distinction between those two coaching, whether it's group or one-on-one, -on -one, uh, which most of my coaching is one-on-one -on -one, it's really inquiry based. As you know, I, you know, I, I'm there to ask the good and the hard questions to help you reveal your own truths, your own answers, your own pathway. That doesn't mean that I don't offer advice or wisdom if I think it's relevant, but it's really an inquiry based practice where I'm listening to your story and your path and what you want. And, the questions are the stimulant or the catalyst for your growth and your change. Thinking about it, training is giving someone something, teaching them something. Facilitation is almost environmental. Like we're going to create the space in the environment. And then coaching is the, the power of the question and 
you know, really unlocking. It doesn't mean that facilitation obviously doesn't involve questions. A great training will also involve questions. It doesn't mean a coach doesn't have to be aware of the space that they're creating. It doesn't mean that a, a facilitator doesn't have to also be aware of some skills that they might have to teach. Um, but it sounds like primarily it's, you know, hey, if I'm training, I'm giving. Uh, if I'm facilitating, um, it's very focused on environment. And if I'm coaching, it's very inquisitive on the question. Would that be fair to sort of? It's fair. It's very fair. And they all, at least in terms of how I work, they all blend together. Like it's, it's a very, but there's a lot of crossover uh, between them, which is what makes it so interesting. Would you say you're primarily one of those? If you were to lean, like lean in with one of them, is there one that you lean into more? I probably lean into a hybrid of facilitator coach mode mostly. I mean, I'm, I'm doing all of this in terms of my work, but that's, that's more of my happy place. Actually, right now I would say my happiest place I teach in the coaching program and the facilitation program. I think my happiest work is training coaches and facilitators how to work this craft that I would say is my happiest professional place right now. Training is, trainers. Yeah. Yeah. And really helping them find their own identity and their own way in this work. What do you, what do you get out of that? Oh God. It, it, first of all, it's the perfect blend of those three practices. It's training, it's coaching, it's facilitating. But what I love about it the most is, is something will happen in the room and I'll stop and say, okay, what just happened? What was my response or what was my partner's response? What are the consequences of that choice? What are four other choices you could make? What might be the consequences of those choices? Like, it's just so real. It's actually the biggest barrier to my writing a book because I feel like, <laughs> I feel like my work is so happening in the moment and it's almost like choose your own ending, right? There's so many different choice points. And I just love that idea of pulling back the curtain for students and helping them understand the choices we make and help them try and understand the choices they might make in that situation and what the consequences could be. So it's all happening in real time and it's so dynamic. So I find it to be incredibly exciting. It's fascinating as I listen to your journey. When we met years ago, my company was called Core Mental Training and I was doing a lot of teaching. I was working with a lot of high school athletes even the pro athletes, college athletes, it was a lot of skill-based work, mental performance skills. Like that's, that's what we do. And it doesn't mean it wasn't my education in grad school was housed in a psychology department. So we learned counseling skills and, and we're very aware of how to bring out someone's best, but it definitely was skill-based. It was tool-based. And um, I then sort of became more aware as I started to work with organizations, I started to get to work with sports teams. And I was like, wait a second, I need to work in partnership and in alignment with the coaching staff or the front office. And now I'm trying to help them develop their culture. And I liked working with the teams. And then I started to really when, and this is really when Georgetown, when I went through the program, I started loving to work with sports coaches and coaching them. And mm -hmm. For me, that is something that I love to do is I love to work with executives coaching them, but I also love sports coaches. And there's another piece that, that's going to bring it back to you, which is the performance. And for me, this podcast is a performance. It's going to be evaluated. It's going to be judged. Maybe someone gives me one star. Maybe someone gives me five stars. Hopefully, if you're listening, you'll give us five stars. But the reality is when you put yourself out there, there's going to be judgment and evaluation involved. And for the clients I work with, especially on the sports side, there's always an evaluation. You either win or you lose. And it, it's very finite, which can get harsh and can get tough. Um, but for me, I like speaking. I like being in front of a room and the influence and the impact you can make in front of a room and, and watching you perform. It was fascinating. Um, and I think about acapella and I think about soccer. Um, and I'm curious for you how you set your mind for a performance. Uh, what do you do to get yourself ready? How do you make sure that you're in the right headspace and get yourself ready to perform to the best of your abilities? Hmm. It's such a good question. You know, I will reveal about myself that I am like, 
I'm still waiting to be discovered. Like, I really think that I have an Academy Award in me. Like, I have my speech ready. I just need someone to give me my shot. I mean, I can do rage. I can do humor. I can do emotion. I have got it. I, I, I might have jumped the shark. I might be too old because I definitely don't want to play like a mom in some movie, right? But I, performance is a part of this for me. I uh, creatively, like, I, I write, I have this side business called Ringles Jingles where I write like custom skits and shows and songs and poetry slams for, I write them for my family, but I also, people can hire me to do it for them. So I have a lot of creative energy and I find that um, when I'm doing this work, I, I believe that whatever work you're doing, and even if it's hard work, that people can feel good and they can laugh and they can have levity. We don't actually have enough of that in the world. So when I am doing this work, I feel like I can bring my true authentic self, which is serious, but also super playful. I see the humor in everything. And I really like to bring that out. And I guess the way I pump myself up is I say, I have something to offer this group. Right. I, I can challenge this group. I can make this group laugh. I can I can bring out um, I can bring out people's passion or help them to remember why they're doing what they're doing. So even if I'm nervous and my heart is beating, I just tap into how am I going to be in service to this group today and what can I offer them as a part as opposed to, oh, these people are going to think I'm fabulous like it truly isn't about me. It's a stage that lets me be my true self. But I always say to all the people I train. The goal of, of, of a facilitator is to be forgotten. I mean, I don't really want you to forget about me, right? But I want you to forget about me because I want you to remember the experience you had and how it changed you. This is not about me. So I think that mixture of that, of how to be in service to others and how to how to feel um, the, the sort of the meditation I do before I get up on a stage or, you know, do now a huge webinar is a gratitude practice. As I like to say, to be very blunt, there are a lot of things that I suck at, right? But I think when it comes to my work, I do the thing that I love the most and that I'm best at. And I do not take that for granted on one second or any day. Like, how did I get to this place where I get to do the thing I love the most and that I feel like is my, is my true gift? That's rare. And so just to remember how lucky and privileged I am to do this helps kind of calm the nerves and show up, help me show up as my best self. Love that. And I have this video I'll send to you with Beyonce, who everybody knows is this generation's version of Socrates. And uh, she was performing at the Super Bowl. And at the end of it, she's replaying it. And at the end of it, she became emotional. And she said, I was just so grateful to be able to do this and felt so blessed. And um, I think of her because I think she's doing what she's meant to be doing. I don't think anyone has any questions about that. But her passion and her love and her drive and her fierceness and her tenacity and her willingness to transform while she's on stage are things that I am in awe of and I try to sprinkle into my life because she's pretty shy and reserved away from the the arena and away from the stage but when she gets on that stage she brings out another side of herself I don't think she's not authentic or genuine I think we all have these different sides to ourselves that we want to create environments that can bring those best sides of ourselves out at the appropriate time and I think that appropriate time really matters um yeah, you know, it's interesting. I uh, That idea of being authentic and real is also it has another side to it because one of the things I really work on as a professional is my ability to be vulnerable in front of groups. And I remember a few years ago when I was getting certified in a 360 instrument, I had to do a 360. And some of the feedback I got was that uh, that sometimes I can be hard to connect to or relate to. And this absolutely threw me off my game because being someone, you know, easy to connect with is the thing I value most. It's so central to me. So I was really like excavating and trying to understand why would I get that feedback? And when I dug deeper and followed up with some of my people, they say that like I come off in front of the room all shiny and I got it all together and not really talking about my struggles or what's hard for me. 
And what I uncovered through some deep work is that as a woman in this field, who's perceived as a master facilitator, I felt like I had to show up a certain way in the room with strength to keep my credibility. Like there was something gendered in there that if you know, I showed that emotion or fell apart or got really vulnerable, what might that do to my authority and my credibility? And so over the last several years, I've really consciously been practicing revealing more about what's hard for me, what I'm working on, what I'm struggling with, some pain points. And it's been like dipping my toes in that water feels very different because I have a strong presence in the room, but it's been very helpful to me. And I think really landing for the people I work with. Mm. It's powerful. We, we did an act. First of all, when I saw you in person, I, I didn't feel like you were hard to connect with. And just so you know, when we had coffee, uh, we've done it a couple of times. I've never felt like you're hard to connect with. So just some more feedback for you. I wasn't mm -hmm. part of your 360 assessment, but that's more feedback for you. When we started Georgetown, the coaching program, they had us write down on a piece of paper that on one side, we're a novice and on the other side, we're an expert. And I love that idea that we're all novices and we're all experts. And I recently had someone on my podcast, Ashley Merriman, who's written some amazing books, uh, one of which you would probably love called Top Dog, which talks about the importance of competition. Um, and Ashley's actually in Washington, D.C. as well. Um, and Ashley talked about the idea of a novice and an expert that a novice believes that there's one way to get there, whereas an expert knows that there's multiple possibilities. And I thought that was just a cool little nugget. And as I'm thinking about hearing your and reflecting on your evolution is this idea that, oh, wait, I can actually bring these different sides to me into a facilitation and, and to know when to use those different sides of you. It gives you, to use a baseball analogy, a fastball, a curveball, a changeup, you become a harder pitcher to hit. Whereas if you just have a fastball, you know, it might work for a certain group or a certain person, but then where's your curveball and changeup? You're one dimensional and you could be a closer, but you can't be Max Scherzer for the Washington nationals and, you know, be one of the best pitchers of all time. So um, there's our sports analogy that we're going to run with before we finish today. I want to make sure we get to a point that you made before we started recording, which is remote facilitation and mm -hmm. remote work. And first of all, it's not lost on me that you've been at this for a while in some ways, because you had to, when you say I'm in Israel and, you know, at midnight I'm drinking a Red Bull and I'm facilitating conversations. Um, so you've been at this uh, for some time. So some people are at this just for a year uh, and you've been at this for a while now. So I'd love to learn from you as far as what you've learned makes a successful virtual meeting uh, conversation what are some things that you've noticed that you've learned and, and that you've put into practice for yourself? Oh, we'll need another five hours for that. Uh, I would say it's been so fascinating. How, yes, I've been doing this for a long time and then all of a sudden the whole world needs it literally, right? So I've probably spent the last nine months, eight hours a day teaching people how to convert their work to the virtual space, how to facilitate online, how to have presence online. So I'll share with you some of my quick tips that's, that are really important. First of all, the presence piece is huge. People feel boxed in by Zoom. They talk about, oh, we're in a room with 10 boxes on Zoom. I don't see it that way. I see it as windows. Like right now, Brian and I are in a beautiful room in two windows, and I'm fascinated by what I'm seeing in the window. I mean, I see the book, the little basketball, the diplomas, like I have a hundred questions about what I'm seeing in your window, right? There's a certain intimacy, the way that we show up. You don't want to feel constricted in your, you know, in your window. You can still be super animated and uh, passionate and, and alive, even though you're in the virtual space. Remember, people feel like on the one hand that they're so far away and they have this protective shield with virtual work, but I'm looking at Brian and I'm five, I'm five inches from your face. I'm in a way closer to you here than I would be in the room. So you, you can have quite a bit of intimacy in the virtual space. For me, it all comes down to one thing and it comes down to design. How are you designing your time in the virtual space? Whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, meetings, gatherings, conferences, retreats. The huge mistake that people make in this work is they say, whatever we were gonna do on the room, we'll just do online. And it doesn't work at all. 
there is a whole conversion theory of how you take what you were supposed to do live and put it into the virtual space. And the conversion tends to people's diminishing attention spans. It tends to technology. It tends to the fact that people are zoomed out literally, they're online too much. So uh, one, of the, one of the things that has been so exciting that's come out of this time is the development of a new theory of mine, which we wrote about and um, Harvard published our article about helping people understand virtual work like you're doing a high impact interval training workout, a HIT workout. Okay. So in short, doctors, exercise science, exercise science people, researchers have basically spent years now saying, don't go for a run for an hour. Don't do it. I know that's good news for everyone. Instead, like run hard for 10 or 15 minutes, run hard and then have, you know, five or 10 minutes of active recovery, like get that heart rate up and then bring it down and then up and down intervals. So all these places, Orange Theory and boot camps and all these places that have come up literally are taking your heart rate up and down, up and down. So the idea is, you know, is active like intensity at bursts of intensity and active recovery. Metabolically, it's better. Calorically, better for your heart, better for your muscles. Okay. So I'm thinking, great. What about our brains? That organ, I like to actually think of our brain as a muscle that we're working all the time, right? If it's good for our bodies, why aren't we doing this for our brains? So I spend most of my time teaching people how to redesign their work and intervals. You are not allowed to talk online at people for more than 10 to 15 minutes without having them, without a breakout room, asking questions, do something on chat, do something asynchronously. You got to do the interval, then you stop, then you can go back and you can pummel them with more information at around 10 to 15 minutes, interval break. So you're constantly toggling back and forth where your students or your participants are in the passenger seat and now you put them right in the driver's seat. So their brain has that, you know, that intense burst of activity and the active recovery is the questioning, the engagement, the application, the talking. You have to think about your work in that way. It's the only way to survive in the virtual world. And by the way, you should know that that's how my work is in the real world too, because I just honor people's diminishing attention spans. So that's been really transformative, very hard for people to grab onto. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. A clients always say to me, our CEO loves these state of the unions. She talks for 45 minutes straight, and then there's 15 minutes of Q&A. How do we make that more interactive? And you know, my answer is you don't. Have her record her remarks. Let me put my headsets in and go for a run or walk my dog or get on the Peloton or get in my pajamas. Let me listen to it at my own pace, stop and start. And then when we get online together, let's debate. Let's break out, right? It's don't do it. So I'm really trying to push people to think about their work differently. And instead of thinking, oh, this is choppy, to think about how you're constantly engaging your listening and honoring where they are right now. You know what's interesting about that? You said something, you said, this isn't the same as being in the room and in person, so let's not pretend it is. But as I'm hearing you design an experience, I think it's also worth noting like I get asked to do keynotes. Uh, I'm sure you get asked to do keynotes. I, when I keynote, I'm not lecturing for an hour. Like I, I have no desire to do that. And I don't think anybody wants to hear from me for an hour. And so when I do it, like we're going to do some experiences, we're going to do some discussions and you let go of some of the control when you do that. But that to me is where the learning occurs and so I'm curious for you, when you get asked to do a keynote, how much do you chop it up? Um, how much do you think about that experience? Because I, I think the opposite is true. Like maybe we can learn from this virtual experience to actually change how we're running our meetings when we are in person in the future to realize that nobody wants to listen to the CEO for 45 minutes pontificate and sit there in a room when they can get that information a million other ways. I, I talked to a CEO client about this and their team the other day. It's like, what's the purpose of your meeting? How do you create the world's best meeting? What does that look like? And they've come up with a game plan for that. For example, the first five minutes, they're checking in with each other, especially right now, because this is a hard time for a lot of 
people. The second five minutes, they're going to give themselves space that if one of them wants to share a little bit more about what they might be struggling with or what they're excited about, they've got that. And then we talked about they're, they're creating the rest of the meeting, but like being really intentional about meetings. So this question, I guess, is meetings slash how you think about keynotes um, and the experiences of those. I, I won't do a keynote for more than 15 or 20 minutes, right? Even if they want me to. So I, I really push back. And when I do have to do longer ones, so I'll give you a, a perfect example. If um, working with a very, very large organization trying to trying to train and coach fundraisers on how to overcome their fear of asking, especially during a pandemic. So giving them inspiration, giving them a reframe, giving them some tools. So what do I do? I do my first 10 or 15 minutes and of my keynote, and then I have a commercial break where I show a two minute video on how this organization is literally changing lives. Back to Ray for 10 minutes, then we highlight a department, that department that no one knows about in the organization because maybe they're 20 steps away from the product, but how they're actually contributing to changing lives. Back to Ray, like I just make it like the days when we used to have commercials. I know we don't have commercials anymore because you know we watch everything recorded. Uh, nothing is live anymore, but I just design the hour long keynote into intervals. It's much more interesting and it keeps people engaged. There's always a way to do it. This is the bottom line, Brian. I think this will re really resonate for you. So much, so much of our life and especially now is about mindset and the way that you show up. And in my work, what you have to say, what I have to say every day is it's not going to be the way I thought it would be. There is loss, right? I'm not going to be in the room with people and no one wants to be in the room more than me. I'm actually that person in New York City who sits next to people on subways. I know that sounds really creepy right now, right? Like there, there is loss. It's not going to be the way that it was supposed to be or that we envision. The next step of that is it doesn't mean it has to be worse it is definitely gonna be different. And if you can move through the loss of what it was supposed to be and say, it, 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 that doesn't mean it has to be worse, it means it definitely has to be different, then the world is your oyster. There's so many possibilities for how it can be different. So I have found the last nine months have been, for my brain, one of the most creative and generative times of my life, of how to push myself to think about, okay, it's not gonna be this, what could it be? Like what is possible? I said to uh, I said to my daughter the other day. Oh my gosh! I just realized that the root of the word impossible is I'm possible. And she's like, Mom, the internet came up with that five <laughs> years ago. I'm like, No, no, no! I totally made that up. So I'm in such a place of I, my mindset is so much about what else is possible because I've 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 worked through that loss. And so I think that mindset and how you're showing up, especially when we're doing work in the virtual space is like 80% of the work, then it's the design and then it's showing up. So, so let's end with a possibility exercise. And this is an exercise I stole from you, which we were at this conference at Georgetown and you had us split up into triads and you encouraged us to, to have to share it's the next year. So we're going to say it's 2021 and it's been a great year. And I want to hear from you what possibilities will occur in 2021. So uh, we're not going to do it the same way that you do it. And if you hire Ray, it'll be much better than this. Uh -huh. uh, I can guarantee you. Um, but, and, and Ray usually wants you to go into the mental, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, all these different aspects, which I really appreciate. But I'd love to end with just this possibility piece is like, what are you thinking about what's possible in 2021? And I'd love to hear you sort of step into that. So it's 2021 and it's been a great year. What has happened? And you know the exercise. So Ooh, I love usually not the one who gets to do it. Yeah. You could take I mean, us home. You mean for me or for the world? For you. Oh, I might be having a milestone birthday this year. Uh -oh. uh, might. Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe I'm going to be 40. Uh, just kidding. I always said that I would run the New York Marathon when I turned 50, but unfortunately, my left knee is not cooperating. So I would say for 2021, I'm going to take on a very big physical challenge to be determined. I'll let you know, uh, just to really push my body to the next level on this milestone birthday. I... Uh, a vision I have for myself is I have a lot that I want to say. I have a lot that I want to give people. 
And it's often hard for me to get it from my brain to my fingers. It is so easy to get it from my brain to my mouth. But the writing piece has always been more challenging for me. And I want to really push myself in 2021 to start taking all this that I've learned and practice and put it, I don't know if it'll be a book. I don't know if it'll be uh, choose your own ending. I'm not sure what the medium is, but this is going to be a big challenge for me that I really want to step into in 2021 is to how to get um, some of this wisdom and some of these new principles out to the world. And the other wish I have for 2021 is um, not only that, you know, we're safe and healthy with a vaccine, but on the most basic level, that my four children can go to sleepaway camp this summer so I can travel with my husband again. Is that okay to say? Can we end on that? <laughs> we can pretty much end on that. The last thing we'll end on is if people want to learn more about you, what you're up to, how they can find you. Uh, I just want to give you a megaphone to, to shout it out. Oh, thank you so much. So my website is ringlegroup.com and all of my information is there. You can also, if you look up the Georgetown uh, executive certificate and facilitation, uh, my information is there. And, you know, I guess the bottom line is I'm committed to helping people get more of what they want. Sometimes that's through coaching, training, facilitation, deep listening. We just will determine, you know, I'll determine the intervention once I know where you're going and what you want. So there are worlds of possibilities and what a great time in the world to be pushing ourselves. Awesome. I play on Twitter and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. Are you on social media, Ray? I think you're on Twitter. Yeah, I don't really know how to use it, but I'm <laughs> on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and a little bit lower tech. Awesome. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening as always. And I will say this, uh, we're about to hang up and have a short conversation about the program that Ray started for facilitation at Georgetown, because we've been talking about it for years. It's something that I've wanted to do. And for me, what I love is just constantly learning and growing. And I know Ray does too. And I highly, without even going through the program, I've talked to a lot of students who have gone through the program and they just speak so highly of it. And I'll give a plug to Ray. If you ever need a facilitator, Ray is the person. So um, I just want to acknowledge that as well. Uh, really grateful to get to spend time with you today, to spend time with you always, and to have you in my life as a mentor. And uh, looking forward to learning more from you in about a minute here as we, as we hang up. Thank so thanks for coming on the podcast and looking forward to many more conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So even if I'm nervous and my heart is beating, I just tap into how am I going to be in service to this group today and what can I offer them as a part, as opposed to, oh, these people are going to think I'm fabulous. Like it truly isn't about me. It's a stage that lets me be my true self. But I always say to all the people I train, the goal of, of, of a facilitator is to be forgotten. I mean, I don't really want you to forget about me, right? But I want you to forget about me because I want you to remember the experience you had and how it changed you. This is not about me. So I think that mixture of that, of how to be in service to others and how to how to feel um, the, the, sort of the meditation I do before I get up on a stage or do now a huge webinar is a gratitude practice. As I like to say, to be very blunt, there are a lot of things that I suck at, right? But I think when it comes to my work, I do the thing that I love the most and that I'm best at. 